BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. This portion of the Hartman Report podcast is brought to you by Phone.com. Get two months of their base plan plus 20% off any service for life. Just text my name, Tom, T-H-O-M, to 511-511. Or use the code Tom at Phone.com today. Certain restrictions apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome to our program. Tom Hartman here with you. There's so much going on we're going to get into today. Another insane week with an insane man in the White House. It's just, it's mind-boggling. Professor Lawrence Tribe, he's the constitutional professor of law at Harvard University, tells Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, Donald Trump violates the emoluments clauses. He enriches himself at the expense of American taxpayers. He takes money from foreign governments in order to benefit himself. He bends policy in the direction of those governments, whether it's Saudi Arabia or another country, to enhance his own wealth. And now we understand he may be making some kind of deal with Ukraine, perhaps to get information of a negative kind about Joe Biden's son in exchange for aid to Ukraine. It's treachery, if not treason, and it's bribery, and it's unacceptable says the constitutional professor from Harvard, Lawrence Tribe. Amen. I'm going to dig into that in just a second. There's just an awful lot going on. The climate strike is happening all over the world. Young people leaving school, other people getting into the streets. There's protests planned in cities all over the United States. There were protests literally all over the planet. A new report from science suggesting about a third of all the birds in North America are gone. We're going to get into that. There's just so much going on. So anyhow, Donald Trump held a press conference, or a, uh, actually he doesn't hold press conferences anymore. He was meeting with the Prime Minister of Australia, and in that meeting they invited the press in, and people got to shout questions at him, and he would answer the ones he wanted and ignore the ones he didn't. And this is very different from a regular press conference where the person asking the question actually has microphones pointed at them, and you can hear the questions and all this. I mean, Trump does it this way so that he can basically be the filter. And he's saying, oh, no, you know, he says, A, I don't know what they're talking about. And then B, it was a totally appropriate conversation. So obviously he does know what they're talking about. And we still don't know if the whistleblower report had to do with Trump's conversation with the president of Ukraine, who is relatively newly installed. He won just a few months ago. And he is a former comedian. It's like as if Jon Stewart ran for president and won. 
John Stewart is a solid guy, too. You know, politically speaking, he's very savvy, he's very smart, and he's a comedian. And, and Zelensky, I believe his name is, the new president of Ukraine, kind of same thing. But it increasingly is looking, I mean, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post just very recently. This was uh, September 5th. This was their editorial page, editorial. The headline was, Is Trump Strong-Arming Volodymyr Zelensky for Political Gain? And what they said was that Trump had, quote, suspended the delivery of $250 million in U.S. military aid to a country still fighting Russian aggression on its eastern provinces, leading some to suspect that he was once again catering to Vladimir Putin. Now we discover that, well, apparently it wasn't just that Putin wanted him to do this. Apparently, it was that he's trying to get Zelensky to crack open something on Joe Biden. Now, just so you know what this is all about, Joe Biden has a bunch of kids, right? And two of his sons, one of them went to China and made a fortune. One of them went to Ukraine and made a fortune. The guy, uh, Hunter, was the one who went to Ukraine. Uh, Rudy Giuliani on CNN invoked the one who went to China. The one who went to China put together a, an investment fund and raised over a billion and a half dollars. It wasn't just him. It was him and a bunch of partners. And, and I don't think anybody's suggesting that there was anything improper about that. Although being the vice president's son, I mean, this was done while Biden was in the White House, certainly didn't hurt, I'm sure. But his other son, Hunter, went to Ukraine and got you know a nice job on the board of directors of a Ukrainian natural gas company, I believe it was. And I'm telling you this not as a knock on Joe Biden. In my opinion, Joe Biden had nothing to do with any of this. And there's no evidence that I've seen that any of this is improper. But this is what the Republicans are going to be doing. Just like they said, oh, Hillary Clinton, Uranium One. Well, there was no connection between Hillary Clinton and Uranium One other than the State Department, you know, authorized the sale of uranium. And uh, but, you know, they, they turned this whole thing into Clinton cash, into this book, into this scandal. And, you know, most Republicans believe it. So this week, the news cycle and the story has been, oh, my God, who did Trump talk to? And, you know, how many more secrets did he give away? And what kind of treason is he committing? I can virtually guarantee you that by next week, the media narrative, which is going to start today on right wing hate radio and Fox News. And I have not listened or looked to see if I'm right on this, but I just know how these things work that they're going to be saying, well, Joe Biden is incredibly corrupt and he helped his kids become multimillionaires. And while he was vice president and using his connections, blah, blah, blah. And that's the real scandal here. The real scandal isn't that Trump was trying to reveal this to the world. It was that it happened. This is going to be how they're going to sell this thing. And the question in my mind, I mean, you know that Fox News and right wing hate radio are going to be all over this, right? But the question in my mind is, will the corporate media, will the mainstream media follow along like a pack of dogs chasing a car with some shoes dangling off the rear end of it? I mean, you know, it's are they going to buy the narrative? And if they do buy the narrative, what's that going to do to Joe Biden's chances for the White House? And I think one of the reasons why the Republicans at this particular moment have been holding back on this narrative is they didn't want to roll this out until Joe Biden had locked up the Democratic nomination. And increasingly, it's looking like Biden really doesn't have it locked up. You know, there was this Washington Post report that showed that only 9% of Democratic primary voters have actually conclusively, definitely made up their minds. 
91% are still undecided. Between the two of them, between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, the two genuine progressives in the race who are not taking corporate money, they have substantially more votes locked up, more primary voters locked up than does Joe Biden. And if you add up Joe Biden and all the other Democrats who are taking money from big corporations and wealthy donors, it still doesn't equal the numbers that are represented by both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. So the White House is probably starting to think, you know, there's a real progressive groundswell here. And it's really, you know, catch and hold with Elizabeth Warren and with Bernie Sanders. And then there's a kind of half progressive groundswell that's caught some energy with Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and maybe Cory Booker or Beto O'Rourke. It doesn't seem to me like, though, any of them are pulling more than two or three percent in the polls other than Kamala Harris and, and Pete Buttigieg. And so they're the ones who would challenge Biden. I mean, they're, they're kind of on Biden's side, the so-called centrists, the Democrats who are willing to take money from corporations. So I think the Republicans are saying, hey, let's hold off on trashing Joe Biden until we find out if he's actually going to be the nominee. This is all stuff that was put into motion months ago when everybody just assumed Biden was going to be the nominee. But in any case, this is what they're doing and this is where they're going. And if they do hold back on going after Biden on this stuff, it's only going to be because they want to wait until next year. They want to wait until he's the nominee and they can actually use it to take him down or they can try to use it to take him down. I don't think it will, but it'll be the same thing as with Hillary. It'll create doubt. It'll stain his reputation. Even if there's no there there, like there wasn't with Uranium One or like there wasn't with Benghazi or like there wasn't with her emails. So we'll see how this plays out. But even George Conway now, Kellyanne Conway's husband, tweeted, if this actually happened, Donald Trump should be impeached and removed from office without delay. Period. Full stop. And, you know, this guy's a, a lawyer and, you know, knows what he's talking about. And meanwhile, Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit in New York claiming his lawyers. This is, a, you know, a lawsuit against the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr., who is looking into criminal activity by Donald Trump. And the lawsuit says Donald Trump is, quote, not subject to criminal process for conduct of any kind while he is serving. Now, that's completely ahistoric. Nobody has ever even remotely suggested anything like that in the past. And uh, in fact, there's a long list of presidents. There's about a dozen presidents who have been investigated with regard to possible criminal activity while they were in office. You know, most famously Bill Clinton, but it goes way beyond Bill Clinton. And in fact, the Department of Justice rules, while they say you can't indict a sitting president, they explicitly say you may investigate his criminal activities. So it's getting bizarre. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And as Mark Sumner points out over at Daily Kos, whatever Trump is hiding in his taxes, it must be a whopper, whatever crime he is hiding. We'll be back. Today in the Tom Hartman Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richards Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies 
reduce stress, restore sanity, and improve everyone's well-being. This is in Chapter 6, The Misconception of Meritocracy, page 161. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became Foreign Secretary in Theresa May's Conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Given, giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85, he said. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head uh, of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff, just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We are per we're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, 
but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interests that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases in social mobility, there are, the same, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to, fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent develop development that we discussed in the last chapter. Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, gets good exam results, or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all and to do anything about preventing or re remedying bad outcomes. The book, The Inner Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWNGOLD. We were talking about homelessness in the United States. Much it would cost to solve the homeless problem is somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 20 billion dollars a year to house every single homeless person in America. How Utah gave homeless people housing it was a program that ran for about two years. They dropped their homeless rate by 91%. Uh, they've since dialed that back in the face of budget cuts and increasing rents in Salt Lake City, and thus homelessness is going back up again in Utah. So we know what works and what doesn't work, apparently. But there are individuals out there and organizations that are working really hard to solve or at least mitigate the, the harms of homelessness. And one of the really cool ones are the folks, uh, Rob and, and Trigger, over at HumbleDesign.org, spelled just like it sounds, HumbleDesign.org. Uh, Rob, and, and they're also the co-hosts of the Welcome Home Saturday morning uh, show on the CW Network. Uh, Rob and Trigger, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much for having us. We're huge fans. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'm fans of the work that you're doing. The tw Twitter handle, by the way, is also at Humble Design. So uh, whichever one of you wants to go first, tell us what is it that you're doing? How have you helped over 1,265 families since 2009? And how did this get started? It's really simple. Basically, what we do is we take all the furniture out there that people are willing to donate and we use it to furnish homes for families who are leaving homeless shelters. Right now in our country, families who are leaving homeless shelters have about a 50% chance of going back into the shelter within 12 months. With our program, it's only about 1%. And that all comes down to dignity and pride of your home. Isn't this because people lose everything, they end up in a homeless shelter, and then they get out of the homeless shelter, they get housing somehow, and they don't have furniture, they don't have bedding, they don't have rugs, they've got nothing basically except the clothes on their back, and acquiring those things requires a certain amount of money, which they have to then take away from other necessities of life, whether it be medical care or rent or whatever. Am I accurately... Uh, characterizing how this happens and why you've identified this as a particular pressure point where you can have a huge impact with a small amount of activity? Yeah, so really when people leave a homeless shelter, they don't have any means at all from where they left. This is a, the last place you want to be. Thank goodness homeless shelters exist, but you've exhausted all your options. You don't have any money left to put everything that you've ever collected or all your furniture into storage. You have no money left over for anything. So really, everything that you've ever gathered your entire life goes to the curb. Your landlord, when you're evicted or when you're put out or when you leave a friend's house, it all goes to the curb, only what you can carry into the homeless shelter. Wow. So when you finally do find housing, you're often sleeping on the floor with your children. You have no place to eat, no place to put away your clothes. Every day seems overwhelming and daunting and, frankly, pretty depressing. Yeah, it's a day-to-day it's a -day survival mode. Uh, that we found that they're in. And when Humble Design is able to come in and in one day give them an entire home, not just furnishings, but showing that we care and love and listen to what they need and personalize the home with our designers, that changes from survival mode and they can get into planning mode. That's, that's, that is really cool. So when people support your work, um, first of all, you started out regional and you've now gone national. Tell us about that. And then secondly, when people support your work, if they go to humbledesign.org, you know, obviously people can make financial contributions, but you also accept contributions. In fact, you started out, I believe, accepting contributions of furniture and clothing and things like that. Yes. So um, any kind of furniture we take. Also, every donation goes to directly to the program. Rob and I have been volunteers since the very beginning. So our organization runs very tight ship because we don't have to pay our CEOs. But Really what it comes down to is every person in this country deserves a sense of dignity and pride in their home. And what we found was this particular niche in the homeless sector didn't exist as part of wraparound services nationwide. The services that collect furniture usually resell them for, to pay for programming. So there, we were shocked when we first started this organization that there wasn't one, not only in Detroit, but nationwide, that actually connected families in need with the furniture that was out there. And trust me, there is so much furniture out there. It is overwhelming the amount of furniture that each of our organizations collect we can't place it all and so hmm. what we have to do is connect that bridge between the furniture out there and the people who need it and if it goes to waste then that is really a shame and a breakdown in our, of our system 
Well, you asked about our national expansion and how that happened. You know, we started in Detroit in 2009, and some amazing donors have helped the, the program go all the way, and the community has come together to support it. U-Haul came in, and we were able to meet with them, and they loved what we were doing as well. They donated a truck to start the relationship, but then moved from there and helped us with warehousing in Chicago. We found support as well from CB2 in Chicago, and then we got connected uh, with Microsoft and the Schultz Family Foundation in Seattle that helped us out. And then San Diego, which is Trigger's hometown, we're able to open up here as well with the help of U-Haul as well as community donations. So uh, it really has been between community and corporations, we've been able to begin to move across the country. And the city of Seattle made an investment and gave us a space as well. So cities are noticing that we're saving the city's money by keeping families out of the revolving door of homelessness and investing in us as well. How and why did you guys start this? I started this in 2009. I had moved to Detroit and I started volunteering at a nonprofit and I made friends with the woman at the front desk. And we had a lot in common, kids the same age. And sitting across from her one day, she confided in me that she had slept in the homeless shelter last night. And I just about fell out of my chair. Um, I had never been confronted face to face with somebody who was struggling that much. Somebody who had a full-time job. You know, people in this country now have two jobs and are still homeless. And that broke my heart. So when she found housing and I went to go visit her in it, I broke my heart again to see her and her children making nests on the floor with their coats. I knew how much excess I had in my own house and I knew how much excess was in my neighborhood. And I started making friends with people in my neighborhood by asking them if I could come up, pick up their extra stuff um, with my friend Anna in our pickup truck. And I soon became known as the furniture lady. Hmm. Uh, Trigger, Trigger was pretty amazing to, you know, not just start this as you know a project for one friend, um, but then went beyond that and started to use our garage like many companies start. <laughs> uh, you know, I went from a two-car garage to a no-car garage, uh, but Humble Design began there. And then Trigger and I uh, looked at e- each other and said, well, maybe this is, you know, our purpose in life. And there's an opportunity here to start something. Uh, and so we made a small investment in, a, in a, a small warehouse and got a couple employees and then started to work with the community to raise funds to help pay for those employees. Um, and from there, we've been able to create a sustaining model that continues to grow. And out of right now, we have what, five, five employees yep. and four locations working on five. And most importantly, we're doing five homes a week across the country. Every week, uh, a family, a veteran or an individual is getting into a beautiful home to restart their lives. Wow. This is amazing. I'm assuming, I mean, you know, you guys started this without any institutional infrastructure. It wasn't like, you know, Community Chest or Volunteers for America or the Red Cross came to you and said, here, we'd like you to do this. I mean, you, you obviously saw a need and met it. I'm guessing that there are other similar groups and people across the country who are doing what they can with regard to homelessness or or many of the problems that are associated with it, lack of access to food, lack of access to health care, things like that. Is there any kind of a, a, a of an umbrella organization, a message board where you hang out, a, uh, a group that has annual conferences, a publication, anything that brings together people who are doing this kind of work, or, or are you kind of all on your own out there? We try so hard. We really do. And we're all getting together because we all feel like the need for good news right now, the need for people to get together. And the nonprofits in this country are carrying a lot of the load more so every year. And then, you know, there are laws passed where you know, nonprofits, people are not encouraged to donate to nonprofits as much. They don't get as much off their taxes anymore. So we're all struggling. Um, but at the same time, we all have message boards and we all do go to conferences, but not in a collective, really organized way. It's kind of hodgepodge. It's not, um, we're not a government entity. We're not run. And we have enough issues right now running our own organizations. We're all trying to 
uh, pay the bills and make ends meet. But we do have furniture banks that, that meet on Facebook and we do have nonprofit um, organizations that get together to bring nonprofits together in each city. We really great. try and participate in those because we're all working towards one collective goal, That's which great. is basically to alleviate the suffering that we see around us. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of it to go around. Robin Trigger Strasberg, the CEO and co-founder of Humble Design. H-U-M-B-L-E-D-E-S-I-G-N. HumbleDesign.org is the website. You can tweet them at Humble Design. Uh, Robin Trigger, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank, thank you. you. We appreciate Appreciate you. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I, I wish you the very, very best and, and keep up the great work. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you, and Garashenko, this is uh, Anton Garashenko. He is a senior advisor to the Interior Minister of Ukraine, has uh, just come out, and this is in an interview with Daily with the Daily Beast, so it's an exclusive to them. It says, uh, you know, we would be glad to look into Joe Biden's son, and if there's any problem there, uh, just please ask the president to formally and publicly ask us. He says, clearly, says Garashenko, Trump is now looking for compromise to discredit his opponent Biden to take revenge for his friend Paul Manafort, who is serving seven years in prison. We do not investigate Biden in Ukraine since we have not received a single official request to do so. Yeah, <laughs> this is getting weird. And now the speculation is, who's the whistleblower? And there are some who are suggesting that it's got to be Dan Coats. I mean, if Dan Coats was the director of national intelligence, uh, he's a former Republican senator, and he was put into this position by Donald Trump. He resigned. He was not fired. He resigned. And a couple of weeks, and this, Rachel Maddow was talking about this, two weeks after he resigned, there was a meeting in the White House where his deputy, forgive me, I don't remember her name. In fact, I'm not sure I ever knew it. His deputy was sitting in this meeting and he interrupts this meeting. I mean, literally, the guy who's no longer the director of national intelligence barges into this meeting and says to her, you have to resign now. In an otherwise you know, normal meeting that had nothing to do with any of this, and she did. She resigned that afternoon. She submitted her letter of resignation to the Trump administration that afternoon, and she got the hell out of Dodge. And then four days after that, that's when the whistleblower report hit the inspector general's office. That certainly would suggest that it is Dan Coates. Thomas Clay Jr. has been uh, writing about this. There's a, a repost of it over on uh, DU from MF Corey one. Clay notes, Trump promised to deliver military goods if the president of Ukraine opened an investigation of Biden. Actually, it would be an investigation of Biden's son. Two of Biden's kids got quite wealthy while he was vice president. And Trump thinks that this is evidence of corruption, one through starting a hedge fund that got a lot of money from China and the other through becoming a member of the board of directors of a Ukrainian fossil fuel company. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Well, as we're hitting the end of the week here and getting ready for the weekend and all kinds of physical activities, maybe a good anti-inflammatory and pain reliever like CBD oil would be a good thing to have around. Uh, CBD is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people who want the benefits of cannabinoids without medical marijuana, without getting high. Uh, it's non-toxic, as I said, potent pain reliever. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. And New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So it remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. That's newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. I think that probably the reason why the Republicans are all just like being completely silent on this is this was supposed to be their strategy for after Biden got the nomination. They're just getting ready for next year. I mean, we're not going to know who the nominee is until, you know, until next year. And so, you know, they don't want to take Biden down now because I think they think Biden would be a whole lot easier to beat from the Republican point of view. It would be a whole lot easier to beat than uh, Warren or Sanders or even Harris or Buttigieg. So in Moscow, Mitch then approved 250 million bucks for election security funds. That might be because he's sick and tired of being called Moscow Mitch. It might be because, you know, these guys are starting to look around and go, this ship is going down and it's time to get off the bridge of the USS Trump because it's going down like the Titanic. And by the way, this is not any kind of deep state thing. The inspector general for the intelligence community is a Trump appointee. And Dan Coats, if he's the whistleblower, was a Trump appointee. And what we're seeing right now is, you know, right in front of us, you're seeing the attorney general of the United States inserting himself into something that should not be part of his purview, right? The Justice Department has nothing to do with the intelligence community unless they're going to prosecute somebody, and, and which is making it look like Bill Barr's real plan here is to prosecute the whistleblower. And by the way, Adam Schiff sends his letter to the director of national intelligence, no longer Dan Coates, saying, please release the whistleblower complaint. And guess what happened the next day? Donald Trump releases the quarter billion dollars for Ukraine that he had been holding saying, I'll give you this money when you give me Joe Biden. And I think he's, you know, he got caught, caught with his hand in the cookie jar. At which point, you know, the kid like says, takes his hand out of the cookie jar or he takes out one cookie and says, well, I was really getting this for my little brother. I mean, there's something really, really snarky going on here, something really bad. Meanwhile, the capital of Australia, Trump is holding a state dinner for the prime minister of Australia. It's the second one he's done since he became president. The only other one was for uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. The capital of Australia is Canberra. The Australians pronounce it something like Canberra or something. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry, my Australian listeners, my apologies. But Canberra is the capital of the country. And they just announced that starting at the end of this year, January 1st of 2020, 
they will join seven other cities around the world as being 100% renewable. All of the energy being used in Canberra will be from renewable sources, or at least all of the energy used by government functions in Canberra will be from renewable sources. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. Just uh, talking about you know what's going on in the world here. Valerie in San Diego. Hey, Valerie, what's on your mind today? Hi, I'm one of the homeless in San Diego, and this new idea that Trump is getting involved is extremely scary. We already have, they just put a new ordinance into San Diego to arrest people living in their vehicles. Wow. We have now become criminals, yeah, for being homeless. And this is scary. Valerie. And I think and the reason I called is to let people be aware that this is happening. And in the rest of California, they're coming up with draconian laws like this, too. I stood up in front of city council and begged them not to do this. I said, this is draconian and it's evil. And this is, comes from our mayor. He hates people who live in RVs. Valerie, feel free to say that you don't want to talk about it, but I'm, I'm curious, how did you end up homeless? I'm on disability. I can't afford rent and to live, too. So are you living out of your vehicle, and, or how are you living? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people who are disabled living in their vehicles in California. And then to add to the problem, with all the fires that we've been having, there are a lot more people living in RVs, which is really upsetting a lot of people who live in houses that all these RVs are around. So it's blooming and blooming, and this is part of the climate crisis. And then San Diego wants us to go inland, and we can't do that because it's too hot for us because of the climate change. Right. And it's and, not, and it's, it's expensive to run air conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I, I get exactly. it. Exactly. Well, Valerie, and I... And with the little money that we have, it's, it just makes it that much harder for us. And it's scary as hell that they can come out and, and just arrest us. And then what's going to happen? I've got two pets. What's going to happen to my pets? What's going to happen to my RV if they tow it away and let me out? Then I'm on the streets. Right. Wow. Valerie, thank you for it's sharing cool. your story with us. Thank you for listening. Thank yeah. you for what you do. Thank you very much. Phew. This is this is tough stuff. I mean, and 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 Trump wants to turn it into a profit opportunity for his uh, private contractors. It's mind-boggling. Fox News has been doing this thing lately on TV where they where they go into cities that have democratic leadership like San Francisco or Los Angeles and do little mini documentaries, I guess it is, or commentaries anyway, on the homeless problem in these cities. And they're portraying these democratically run cities as basically filthy and crime infested and full of homeless people. They have no interest, by the way, in talking about the real deep pockets of poverty in the United States, which are in like Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and the, you know, the red states. So anyhow, Fox has been doing this and Trump is like, oh, well, that's interesting. And so now he's suggesting, apparently, that there be, well, what he called for was, quote, a major crackdown, end quote, on homelessness in California, and said, we should move these people out of the existing homeless encampments and into government-backed facilities. Now, what would that be? Well, can you say geogroup, private prisons, the same people who are charging $750 a day to keep children in cages? Presumably, if this is, you know, this is what Trump is talking about, 
will start getting you know your my tax dollars to, to incarcerate homeless people this is what Diane Yentl, the president and CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, said, quote, they propose drastically shrinking or eliminating federal programs that keep the lowest income people affordably housed. They propose, this is the, the Trump administration, Trump-Pence administration, tripling rents for the lowest income subsidized residents and raising rents for all the others, evicting 100,000 people, including 55,000 American children from subsidized housing, and allowing homeless shelters to discriminate and refuse shelter to transgender and other LGBT people. And then Bob Erlensbush, the executive director of the Sacramento Regional Coalition and Homelessness, told USA Today that Trump's plans would effectively create, quote, internment camps for people experiencing homelessness. And so some California Democrats said today that Trump's crackdown is basically, they're, they're accusing the president of having a feigned concern for homelessness for political purposes. It's amazing. You know, led by Fox News. Surprise, surprise. Meanwhile, and, and all of these things, by the way, I think are, are symptomatic of this larger crisis that has been created in the United States by the adoption in 1981 of Reaganomics. Ronald Reagan stopped the United States from using the economic systems that John Maynard Keynes came up with in the 1920s and that Franklin Roosevelt put into place in 1933. Those economic systems led to the middle class actually growing faster than the very wealthy or the very poor. And the very poor were growing in wealth faster than the very wealthy as well from the 1930s until 1981. It led to workers having a say in their workplace through unions and things like this. It led to lots of great stuff. Reagan reversed all that and we've been in this Reaganomics era ever since, including under two Democratic presidents. And the result of this is now just becoming obvious. You know, literally people in homeless shelters who are working two jobs. This is a, another report. Suicide rates are rising in the United States. From 1999 to 2016, the rate of suicide among Americans between 25 and 64 rose by 41%. Rates among people living in rural counties, 25% higher than in metro areas. There's fewer resources, especially since Reagan and Reaganomics have taken an ax to the kind of services that poor people in remote areas, and particularly red states, might have access to. This is just a national tragedy, all of this stuff together. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. When Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talk about needing genuine systemic change, this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. The systems need to be fixed. Doug Christian with Talk Media News is on the line with us. Hey, Doug, uh, what's happening in the world today? Hey, Tom. Well, it's a very interesting time, of course. Trump has now uh, decried the media as he goes after the um, whistleblower, the, uh, the whistleblower, yes, the, from the intelligence community, and he's saying that this whole thing, of course, is very unfair, and he's saying that the, the media would just focus on Biden instead. That this wouldn't be uh, quite oh, as much of an issue. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Are you are you getting? You know, I'm hearing rumors that the whistleblower may be Dan Coats. Have you heard anything about that? I had not heard that. Of course. The Trump administration is singularly focused on finding out who the whistleblower is. Or it might be the woman who is his assistant. That's another possibility. It could very well be. Well, it looks to me that they're going to figure it out because they are 
keen to figure this out. And of course, it's very dangerous. I mean, how can a whistleblower be anonymous and go through such sources, through such very stringent guidelines, and then be outed? Uh, That in itself is a kind of dissuades anybody else from doing this. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, plus uh, the fact that Bill Barr looks like he's fixing to prosecute this whistleblower. Yeah. I mean, Bill Barr is just despicable. You look at what he did in 92 with, uh, you know, covering up Iran-Contra, and now he's he's the cover-up artist for the Trump administration. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. You would call him despicable, but people who brought him in think he's doing the job well, because they, yeah. he's doing exactly what they want him to do, which is to smooth over all the rough edges. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice metaphor. What else is yeah. going on in the world, Doug? Well, also, the climate is a big, big deal today. Young people are taking to the streets all over the world, protesting inaction on climate change. And, and the very same day, the state of California, along with 23 other states have sued the Trump administration over its reversal on the state's authority to set its own rules on climate warming and tailpipe admissions in cars. Because, of course, four major auto companies have also joined California and said, you know, we're going to do exactly what California says. By the way, everybody else who wants to be in the auto business is going to do the same thing. You can't ignore sales in California and have an auto company that's viable in the United States. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I haven't dug into this story because I just caught the Chiron on CNN a little bit ago, but it said that an agency of the federal government has reported that Many of the people coming to the United States as refugees are actually climate refugees. Do you know about that, Doug? Yeah, that's true, especially in Guatemala. They say that people are starving to death because of climate change. Yeah, they're in the fifth year of a drought in Guatemala. Do you know what federal agency said that? I do not know. But here is another thing that's really kind of happened today, is that the Trump administration has reached a deal to send asylum seekers to El Salvador in an effort to deter migrants from entering the United States. And El Salvador right now is racked by crime. And so, of course, this is a a terrible situation for asylum seekers to be in. Yeah, El Salvador has been a mess ever since Reagan sent uh, death squad John Negroponte down there back in the day. Doug Christian with Talk Media News. Thank you, Doug. You bet. Good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, if you want to say hi in person next Wednesday here in Portland, actually in Beaverton at the Powell's Bookstore in Beaverton, which has a much bigger event room, Naomi Klein will be here. She's got a new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal, and she's going to be talking about her book. I will be on stage with her, interviewing her. We will be in conversation, and it's going to be fascinating. So, you know, check that out. It's over at the Powell's website. But it'll be 7 o'clock on the 25th, next Wednesday at the Powell's in Beaverton. And then in Chicago on October 3rd, I'll be at Smart 265 in Carroll Stream, signing my book and giving a talk on my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. did a great interview with Cenk Uger last night at the Young Turks. That's available over at the Young Turks website if you want to see it. It was almost a half hour long. And, but anyhow, the, the one in Chicago, uh, you can get information about that at WCPT820.com. And then on the 10th of October, I'll be at Powell's main location, downtown Portland here on Burnside at 7.30 p.m. on the 10th of October. Just a heads up, you know, what's coming up and where we're going. 
The Fed had to intervene in overnight markets. The interbank lending, it's called the repo market, the repurchase agreements where basically banks are loaning money to each other for sometimes minutes, sometimes hours at the most, a day or so. And they do that because they need money at a particular moment or they have surplus money at another particular moment. And so it's just, you know, it's this thing that goes on and it kind of lubricates the whole financial system. Well, here we have Adam Sampson in London and Joe Renison in New York reporting on the Financial Times. The Federal Reserve intervened in the U.S. money markets for the third day in a row on Thursday as pressure mounted for the central bank to open a more permanent facility to ease pressure on a pivotal part of the financial system. Keep in mind, the last time this happened was 2008, just before the crash. The New York Fed injected $75 billion in overnight cash into the short-term lending market, and its auction was oversubscribed for the second straight day, with banks demanding another almost $84 billion. Oversubscribed means that the banks needed more money than the Fed was even offering, which means interest rates went up. It activated its repo operation on Tuesday for the first time since 2008. On Wednesday, it ran the operation again as markets remained strained. This is probably the most important unreported story that has the potential to influence all of us that is out there, frankly. And we all need to be taking this very seriously and paying attention to what's going on. This is serious stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see those wrinkles around your eyes, frown lines, crow's feet, large under eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. My under eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet were gone in minutes. Best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them, and the effects last for hours. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get rid of your wrinkles, under-eye bags, and crow's feet today. Visit triplexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, or you can call 800-685-1292. I don't understand this, and I wanted to find somebody who did, so Professor Richard Wolff is with us, our old friend, the economist and author of numerous books, democracyatwork.info, his website. Welcome back to the program. Can you explain to me what's going on here? Well, I can try, but partly the mystery is the deliberate decision of the Federal Reserve not to explain. Maybe it doesn't even know what's going on, but to be simple about it. Banks in the United States and some large corporations find themselves day-to-day sometimes short of money. They have a special need, they have some special problem, probably one they didn't foresee, and, but they just need the money for a day or two to sort it out. And so there's an enormous market for short-term borrowing. And by short-term, I mean a day or even sometimes a matter of hours. 
And there is a market that has developed over the years where these kinds of large borrowers uh, can go into the market and borrow short-term money, as I say, for a day or two or three or four. Um, What suddenly happened Monday morning of this week was that the normal availability of that kind of a loan, which was running in the neighborhood of a little bit over 2% per year for a few days, shot up. There wasn't the money available in all the usual places from all the usual banks who had more than they needed to lend it to the banks who had less than they needed. And so suddenly the ones who needed to borrow the money because their need was urgent had to pay not 2.1 or 2%, but suddenly, as you correctly said, it went up to 10%. Then it wobbled for a while at 5%. So the the question is, what is going on to make it suddenly so much more expensive to borrow short-term money? And let's remember, any bank that has to pay that kind of extra interest will pass the costs on to its customers at least as far as it can. Here comes the mystery. Here comes the mystery. Why? The big question that everybody wants to know is what in the world is going on? And the answer is, we don't know. We're getting from the usual financial sources all kinds of calming explanations. The federal government is running a big deficit, so the Treasury is printing lots of Treasury uh, securities, and somehow people have been buying those, and those people would have otherwise lent their money overnight, so there's a temporary shortage. Whatever it was, the Federal Reserve got extremely anxiety-ridden, knowing that high interest rates were what led us into the crisis and crash of 2008. So what they did was to pump many tens of billions of dollars, literally created the money, flooded the uh, banking system with this new money, by buying the treasury securities that banks already owned in order to replace money in their accounts for the treasuries that the Federal Reserve was buying. And that's the kind of behavior you see in a government agency, that much money literally in minutes that usually signals, and I'm going to be very polite now, extreme uncertainty, strains, and unusual behavior in financial markets. Given that recession is what's on everybody's mind, everybody can imagine, and they should, that this might be the beginning of something genuinely scary. The last time, and I'm doing this from memory that's you know 10 years old, 11 years old, but my recollection is the last time I actually was reporting about repos, you know, about these, these repurchase agreements, was in 2008 that the, that the same market froze up, and that was why Henry Polson was out there trembling in front of the cameras saying, please, Congress, we need billions of dollars. Am I remembering right. that right? Yes, you are. And one of the concerns, which has been heightened by the Federal Reserve's failure to give the public any kind of an official analysis, not that we would necessarily believe them, but it is very troubling 
that they're not even offering, which, of course, fuels the notion that they can't tell us what's going on because it would worsen the problem, namely that we have a 2008 situation. And let me remind everyone that your memory is correct, but it was more serious, as we then learned, despite the calming denials that were issued then, much as they have been over the last 20 hours, the reality was that everybody in the big financial know, the big banks, the big corporations, had finally figured out that we were on the edge of a major meltdown. And it was too dangerous to lend money, uh, you know, overnight, even to the biggest, safest banks and corporations that you had lent such money to for years, because you realized, and this was particularly after the collapse of the Lehman Bank, that whoever you lent to might tomorrow morning, before they paid you back, declare bankruptcy and you would never see your money again. To deal with that risk, suddenly lenders were very hesitant and borrowers had, as you correctly said, suddenly to pay a four times higher interest rate than they were used to because of the nervousness that was beginning to grip financial markets. Now, in your opinion, if if we are looking at something like what happened in 2008, there the precipitating event, although it wasn't the cause. I mean, the cause was all these structural insufficiencies that you and I have talked about a number of times over the years. But is it possible that the triggering event, instead of being the collapse of a bank like Lehman, or the rumor of a collapse, a potential collapse of a bank, which makes a lot of sense given what you just said. Is it possible that in this case, though, it's not that, that it is the possibility of a war on behalf of Saudi Arabia with Iran? It's that, but I think the better way to look at it is with the old adage about the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's never this thing or that thing. If you look at the trade war between the United States and China and the havoc that it is wreaking across the world of manufacturing, not just in the two countries, but in India, in Germany, and all the other countries reporting the negative effects of that, and now you see uh, what drone warfare can do uh, to the oil in the Middle East, and you remember that the world is due for another capitalist recession because they happen every four to seven years, and we're now nine years or eight years out of the last one. Uh, You put all of those together, and then you begin to have to worry whether what might in other circumstances have been a relatively minor glitch Is this time the sign that finally all of that bad news and bad events happening out there are beginning to make major players, financial and non-financial alike, take extraordinary steps like being unwilling to lend money uh, so that suddenly uh, the bank you went to to get an overnight loan tells you, no way am I giving you a loan, no matter what your interest rate is. So you then have to scurry to the next big bank. They will say, well, we're not as worried as the first one. If you pay us 10% instead of 2.2%, well, then we'll give it to you. You're going to then begin to see that this isn't a flash in the pan, a one-shot gig. This is the beginning of the next big downturn. And until the Federal Reserve, A, 
says otherwise, and B, gives us real evidence, we have to keep that as one possibility for what's going on. So over the next few days or weeks, because all this happened just literally overnight. So for the next couple of days or weeks, what should we be looking for in terms of indicators that, you know, it's time to run for cover? The first thing we should look at is to see whether the interest rates, the overnight repo rates, come back down to about somewhere between two and two and a half percent, which is where they were. The second thing we should look at is how many tens of billions of dollars the Federal Reserve is pumping in to get that effect. And the third thing we should look at is whether it's working in the sense of going back down or it's bouncing around. If it's bouncing around low, up and down, then that's probably a sign that the nervousness is spreading and that it is now going from one bank to another, and that can go very, very fast. My guess is we'll have a much better idea where we are at the end of this week than we do now, unless the Federal Reserve's anxiety covers all of this over with some news blackout, which I would take as a very, very scary sign. Wow. Professor Richard Wolf, it is uh, so great to have access to you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining this for us. No problem, Tom. Thanks. You. Glad to do it. Thank you. Democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com uh, with two Fs, the websites. Mick in Burton, Washington. Hey, Mick, what's on your mind today? I'm interested in the conversation you had with Professor Wolf that possibly the reason for all this thing in the repos is due to the possibility that Brexit will uh, affect the But that possibility economy. actually just went down in the last three days. I mean, you've got the European Union saying that they'll grant more time. You've got members of Parliament saying they're not going to allow a hard Brexit. Parliament voted on that, I believe. I think the risk of Brexit is actually lower now than it was. Well, thank you for letting me know that. I, I was under the uh, understanding that um, it's a rippling effect uh, that Germany's quite concerned about. Yeah, well, and, it's, it's, it, may, it may be. It may be that I'm, that I'm misunderstanding it, Mick. I, we'll find out. Thank you for the call. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's up? I've been listening to you and Richard Wolf, and, and I really love Richard. Um, something that has occurred to me is right before this fluctuation in the interest and the and the money that you're talking about, seventy five right. billion. Were you watching the the commodities markets, the gold and silver markets last week by any chance? No, but I did note that gold went up yesterday. Well, now gold and silver both silver had a run. I've been I have wow. a little bit of silver and, and I've been watching it. And it had been laying anywhere from down as far as fourteen eighty or fourteen seventy on up to you know eighteen. Well, then it took a run on almost up to twenty uh, last week. So I'm wondering if there wasn't money speculated, short term money speculated on gold and silver last week. Well, that's interesting. I don't know. I you know I'm, I'm wondering if the oil markets you know because gold and silver tend to track the oil market also, if it, which takes this all back to this attack on Saudi Arabia. But I just you know. Brandy, I don't know. And none of us know. And if Professor Wolf doesn't know, then I guess the important point that he made is the Fed needs to be fessing up. They need to be telling us what the hell's going on here. This may well be a very, very big deal. Anyhow, we'll continue the conversation. In the meantime, don't forget democracy requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 